And now hear God's holy word from Revelation chapter 11 as we continue our study in the book of Revelation. Pay close attention. This is God's holy word. I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, Fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over the waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them, and their bodies will lie in the street of that great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father, we thank you for your word and we ask you to give us your spirit so that as we absorb it, as we hear it, as we seek to understand it, that we do so rightly. Lead us into truth today. Loosen my tongue. Help me to articulate these things clearly. Bless our meditations on your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. People of God in that great first book, The Chronicles of Narnia, in the, in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, near the climax of the book, there's that heart-rending scene where Aslan, the lion, the true king of Narnia, offers his life in place of Edmund to redeem Edmund from the White Witch. And when Aslan gives himself up, all of the twisted, fallen creatures of the land gather together at the stone table to witness and participate in the sacrificial execution of Aslan. The ogres, the hags, the minotaurs, the wraiths, the evil spirits, who are all in the service of the White Witch, they mock and they dance and they laugh and they rejoice as the witch shames Aslan. She ridicules him and she taunts him. She shears off his glorious lion's mane. And that, that scene never fails to move me. As many times as I've read it with my kids or listened to the audio drama, that scene gets me every single time, that contrast between the gentle nobility of Aslan and the pure foolish wickedness of the imps. The evil creatures muzzle him and they bind him and they lay him on the stone table and the witch laughs and insults Aslan one last time before killing him with her knife. And when she does that, all of the evil creatures go into a wild frenzy of, of crazy music and celebration as they parade away, thinking that they have defeated their enemy forever and thinking they have won. 
But that's not the last chapter of the book. Aslan is resurrected and he goes on to a glorious victory where the witch and her minions are thoroughly defeated. And then the Pevensey children reign as kings and queens in Narnia. C.S. Lewis nails one specific truth in that story. And that's this, when the wicked rejoice, it doesn't mean that they've won. It means that their defeat is imminent. We're closer to their defeat when we see them rejoice. When the wicked rejoice, it's not time to lose heart. It is time to take courage. Even a child can see that in the death of Aslan, Lewis is is painting an allegory to the sacrificial death of Jesus. It's an allegory of the cross where there was likewise in the death and sacrifice of Jesus, there was great rejoicing. There was great relief among all of the powers. Herod and Pilate were slapping each other on the back, really thinking that they had achieved something. The priests and the Pharisees believed that their mission was accomplished. They could sit back and prop their feet up and take their shoes off. They've gotten rid of the troublemaker and their work is done. And Satan and his minions think themselves victorious, successful in killing the son of God. But all of that demonic rioting and rollicking and cavorting was turned on its head the next Sunday morning with the resurrection of Christ. Great stories like the Chronicles of Narnia, which beautifully and cleverly communicate truth, are an immense encouragement to us, especially the way they draw us in and lead us to ask the question, what chapter are we living in right now? In our lives, in our world, in our society, what chapter are we living in? Are we in the part where we have fallen under deception and slavery like Edmund did? Are we in the part where it looks like evil is prevailing and there's rioting and dancing and cavorting? Are we in the resurrection and victory part? Is that the chapter we're in? The stories are wonderful insofar as they reflect the Bible. They're communicating to us the very same realities that the Bible teaches us in the narrative of history that the Bible gives us. We see these great movements these great phases and stages of history. We've studied this many times and we can't rehearse it all now, but we'll get back to it again. You have priestly stages of history and you have kingly stages and there are prophetic stages of history. Uh, the, the early chapters of Genesis show us uh, a human culture moving from a garden to the land, to the world. We go from tribal uh, settings to city settings to empire settings. And these, these various stages of history, if we learn them, then we can ask ourselves, okay, what stage are we living in? What chapter are we living in? And therefore, who are our enemies? What are our challenges? What are our duties in these various stages of history? However long these chapters might be, and we don't know, sometimes the bondage chapter is 400 years, like it was in Egypt. Sometimes it's 70 years, like it was in Babylon. Uh, sometimes, as we see here, the persecution stage is three and a half years or 42 months, as we're reading in Revolu Revelation. But, but what chapter is it, is the question. And again, we're presented with the very same question when we study the book of Revelation. Remember, again, the, the, the contents of this book, the contents of Revelation are revealed to John 
in the language of symbol regarding things which must shortly take place. From John's perspective, from his life, these things are just around the corner. And, and John sees this great drama of events that takes place between the ministry of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now, sometimes when I say this, I know that uh, the, the, the little question or the answer comes back is that if, if Revelation is mostly about things that happen in that generation, in that first century, well, then how is it helpful to us? I mean, if this was all happening into our future, then we could look to the future and we could try to figure it out. But if Revelation is talking about stuff that already happened, then what's the point of studying it? And to, to that I ask, what's the point of studying about Noah or Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah or, or any of the other prophets? What's the point of studying them? Each of them stood at the end of a world that was dying. Each of them stood at the beginning of a new world. And we see through Noah and Daniel and Joseph and Esther, and we see through Ezekiel and Daniel, we see how you face the end of a world. How do you face the end of an age? How do you go through it? So the book of Revelation is written to first century Christians who are living in the cities of Asia Minor, who would have a front row seat as the old covenant world collapsed. And this book is written to them to give them confidence and to give them cheer and to give them hope because there's going to be great suffering and there's going to be calamity. But John gives them this book. Jesus gives it to John and John gives it to them to say, here's what's going on in heaven as you see these things take place. Here's heaven's perspective. And this also is highly instructional and helpful and encouraging to us. Revelation provides for Christians in every age a theology of disaster, a, 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 a perspective on calamity, a biblical perspective on defeat. Because we ask the question when we see things falling apart and we see things going sideways, and if we're on the right side, then we ask, how, how can we be on the losing end? How can we suffer? How can we be defeated? Uh, what are we supposed to think? How do we live? How do we respond when Aslan is dead on the stone table? What do you expect to happen next? Well, these answers and this instruction is in the book of Revelation, which is why it's so helpful to us. So today, we're going to finish up our study on the sixth trumpet of Revelation. Jesus has taken up a scroll that contained the death sentence on Jerusalem. It contained the, the curses on the old world of apostate Israel. Israel has fallen away and their time is up. And this book contains the curses against them. And as Jesus opens the book, seven angels trumpet out the contents of the book. The first five trumpets went relatively quickly. But the sixth one has taken us about four weeks to read because the sixth one has several panels. There are several scenes in the sixth trumpet that have to do with the success and the work of the gospel and the results of the gospel as it goes out to the nations, as it goes out across the land. Remember, the first scene of the sixth trumpet was that fire-breathing gospel cavalry that, that roars across the land. The second scene in the sixth trumpet was that Jesus gave John a book to eat. Jesus roared. So now John can roar like Jesus roars. And then he gave him a measuring stick. And he says, measure out the people, measure out the holy sanctuary and separate them and, and, and seal them. And then in this third panel that's in front of us, this third scene is the picture of two gospel witnesses who are sent out to preach, and they're killed 
which is what happens to witnesses. The word witness in Greek is martus. It's the word that we get the word martyr from. Martyr and witness are synonyms. If you're going to be a faithful witness, you better be prepared to be martyred. You're going to lose some things. You're going to sacrifice some things. You're going to give up some things, maybe even your life. So the martyrs that go, the, the witnesses that go out are killed. And the forces of evil rejoice and the forces of evil throw a great party. But then the witnesses are vindicated. They are raised to life and they ascend into heaven. The symbols, as we continue to read this, the symbols are densely packed. And uh, as I said a few weeks ago, we could be here for hours to unpack every single one of them. And so I'm not going to do it. I'll point you to some good resources, good commentaries, and, and I'll even answer your questions that you have about what does this mean and what does this mean? Well, I'll say, this is, this is what I think it means and here's why. But for our time today, as John is just layering into here, I'm, I'm going to try to get over the text and ask three questions. What are these two witnesses? Who are they? What happens to them? And what does it mean for us? Who are they? What happens to them? And what does it mean for us? So that's the first puzzle. Who are they? Who are the two witnesses? Peter and Paul? Elijah and Moses? Jesus and John the Baptist, the law and the gospel, what are they? Who are they? These two witnesses might have been two particular people who preached in and around Jerusalem in 67 or 68 AD in the last days of the city. But if they were two particular people, we don't have enough information to make a real dogmatic statement about that. But we do read that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. These are uh, lampstands. These are trees. Uh, they're called lampstands and trees. So, so whatever they are, we are to read them first in this symbolic sense, in this symbolic um, way. They, uh, we, we read back in Revelation 1 that the lampstands are the church. The lampstands represent the church. Remember when we were reading through the seven churches of Asia? They're the lampstands, right? So these two witnesses really represent the church as a whole and not necessarily two particular people. This is primarily symbolic. And even here, these lampstands, these trees, this is layered. This is heavily layered symbolism. The lampstand in the tabernacle, the menorah, was a an ornamental, it was a stylized, it was an artistic tree. It was a tree in God's sanctuary that gave light. Do you have a problem with Christmas trees? Do you think they're pagan? Do you think they're idols? Do you think it's some druid practice to cut down a tree and bring it into your house and put lights on it? Well, God had a Christmas tree in his sanctuary. He had a tree that was lit up. That was the menorah. That was the, that was the lampstand. It was a tree that was lit up. So if you got a problem with Christmas trees, you got a problem with God, I think. Because we're going to have a Christmas tree. You better not say anything about it, or I'll tell you about the lampstand. So the lampstand in the tabernacle was an ornamental tree. It had branches. It had buds. It had blossoms. But it also lit up. It burned the oil that flowed through the, through the, the stems and the branches. So whenever you, think, whenever you see oil in the Bible, you think light, because oil was burned to give light. 
And also, when you're ordained, you have oil put on you. You're made a light. You're made to shine. The Holy Spirit anoints and ordains and fills the, the, the ordained one. Um, and so all of these things are, are layered in together. When you see trees, you think of food, and you think of shade, and you think of the, the leaves are good for medicine. So these witnesses are trees, symbolic trees, and they're the righteous, fruitful, Psalm 1 faithful trees filled with the Spirit. They shine as lights. And chapter 1 of Revelation tells us, tells us that these lampstands in the heavenly sanctuary are the church. So let's think of these two witnesses primarily and their duties and their responsibilities as the church. But there are two of them. And when you think of two, wit two witnesses, your mind should go back to the law. Deuteronomy 17.6 says that everything should be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. In the case of capital punishment, he who is to die shall be put to death, says the law, but he shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. There's a high standard of evidence for the death penalty. You just can't accuse your neighbor of doing something and that be enough. You've got to have at least two witnesses, two or three. Well, these two witnesses are being called and they're being called and they're going to put a lot of people to death. Verse 5, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. Well, we've already seen twice that this fire breathing is the preaching of the gospel. This is God's altar fire being poured out in the preaching of the gospel. And the gospel is always double-edged. It always achieves more than one purpose. It, it pronounces judgment against the wicked and judgment against those who will not repent and submit themselves to Jesus, but it's also mercy. The fire from their mouths is mercy. The faithful preaching of the gospel convicts you to die. It convicts you to mortify your flesh, to put to death the old man, to be raised to new life. The gospel message is based in the death of Jesus. And if you're going to join yourself to Jesus, you have to die. Uh, you have to die too. So the fire of their mouth puts people to death, but, but primarily the function of the gospel is to mortify us and to raise us to new life in Jesus. It's the same fire that the gospel cavalry breathes at the beginning of this trumpet. It's not their own fire, and that's very significant. It's not their own fire. They're not acting out of vengeance or personal judgment, but they're calling where necessary. They're calling on God's judgment. They're appealing to God. They're not judges. They're witnesses. And you can't have just one witness. You have to have at least two witnesses. So the church is represented here by two witnesses. They have a lot in common with Elijah and Moses. Elijah called for the heavens to be shut up, and Elijah called down fire from heaven. Moses turned the rivers of water to blood, and these two witnesses have these capacities and these capabilities as well. Look at verse 6. These have the power to shut heaven, just like Elijah, so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have power over the waters to turn them to blood, just like Moses, and to strike the earth with all plagues, just like Moses, as often as they desire. So they have authority on earth to command all the resources of creation. They shut up the heavens, they turn the water to blood, they smite the land with plagues. Heavens, waters, land, all three zones of creation they have power over. And by their prophetic work and word, the whole creation is turned over. The old heavens and the old earth pass away by the application and the preaching of the gospel that brings this to bear. And the new heavens and the new earth are established. We read that they're dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is goat's hair. 
just as back in the fifth seal, the sun is darkened like sackcloth, so these prophets, these witnesses have arrived to turn out the lights. They stand at this crisis time between one reality at the next. They, they lead the way out of destruction, uh, out of the old, old, old creation into the new, just like Moses, just like, just like Elijah. Elijah was dressed in a hairy garment. John the Baptist was dressed in a hairy garment. And so these witnesses are as well, and it, and it attests to their prophetic role in calling down uh, the end of one world and, and leading into the beginning of a new world. So as best as I could figure then, these two witnesses are these. They are the sealed elect of God, the, the sealed elect of Israel, the 144,000 that we already saw, and the myriads of Gentile Christians. This is the, the church made up of believing Israel and the church made up of believing Gentiles. In the last chapter, a couple weeks ago, we saw this reference to the mystery of God being finished. What does Paul say in Ephesians? What does he say the mystery of God is? The mystery of God was the thing that was hidden in the old covenant, but now it's been made manifest in the new covenant, and that's how God is putting together both Jews and Gentiles into one new humanity in Christ. The mystery of the new covenant is that the promises of God are now being fulfilled to both Jew and Gentile, and Jew and Gentile together have been made one in Christ. So now you have two witnesses. You have the church made up of believing Israel and Gentile converts who become one. When you get to, when they die, their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city. And I read it and I meant to say, I meant to say body because in the original language in the Greek, that's singular. Their dead body will lie in the street. That's, that's not plural. It's singular. You can look it up and you can check me on that. It's singular. It's one it's one body. Their body lies in the street. They're two. They're two witnesses, but when they die, they're one. One body. They are the body of Christ. They are made one by his death, and they are also unified in their suffering and persecution. Okay, that's a mouthful. I know it's a lot. Let me try to put it all together here. One of the messages here is that all of the things that the witnesses do is an outline of the authority and the dominion and the responsibility of the church. What is the church? The church does the work of these two witnesses. What do we do? We're the heralds of things to come. The church preaches the gospel, which kills and makes alive. It delivers the verdict against the unbelieving world. Christian Jews and Christian Gentiles are the two witnesses who together testify to the execution of Jerusalem and the execution of the temple. If you're going to put something to death, you have to have at least two witnesses. And here, believing Israel and believing Gentile nations come together in the church to say, yes, God, it's time. It's time to put that away. It's time to wrap it up. It's time to move into the, into the new world. Um, that is the function of the church then, and it is the function of the church now. They, uh, the, if you want to flee the wrath to come, the church is the only ark of safety out of the old world into the new. And this has never changed. This never changed throughout history. 400 years after this, as the Roman Empire begins to disintegrate and, uh, and, and everything was falling apart, uh, apart in Rome, it was the church who breathed the fire of the gospel, who called men to repentance and faith. It was the church that preserved learning and culture and institutions through the fall of Rome. And so today it seems as if, and I'm not sure about this, I'm not an expert, but it seems to be a significant 
imminent disintegration of our culture as we know it. So what do we do? Well, we do what the witnesses do. We breathe the fire of the gospel and we stand as witnesses to the death of everything that needs to die. And so we come into God's sanctuary as witnesses to God and say, there are things around here that needs to die. Abortion needs to die. It needs to go away forever, God. We need you to destroy it. Fake marriage needs to die. Fornication needs to die. Uh, false religion, uh, 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 the, the false secular religion of Darwinism needs to die. Marxism needs to die. We stand as witnesses before the face of God and say, these things need to die. And then as they die, we build the new institutions of the next age. We lead the culture out of the old world into the new. The church is the repository of everything good. It's the repository of culture from one age to the next. In the early chapters of Genesis, you see Cain's descendants doing all of this stuff, metallurgy, agriculture, music, all these wonderful things. Who carries that into the world on the other side of the flood? How does it get there? It's there with Noah and his family. It's carried over by the righteous from the old world into the new. In the Exodus, Egypt is devastated. Egypt, Egypt is, is in shatters. It's in tatters. It's torn apart. It's, it's, it's completely wiped out. Who is it that carries the riches of Egypt into the new world on the other side of the Red Sea? Well, it's it's the people of God who plundered Egypt. It's the church that is the repository of everything good to carry it into the new world, which is why it's essential that we continue to establish institutions, that we, that we build things and make things that last and that are based in and grounded in God's law and God's work in the world. Uh, that's, that's our duty. So that's, that's their identity. That's their role, as I understand it. That's who the witnesses are and what they do. So what happens to them? Well, their existence makes everybody miserable. John the Baptist made everybody miserable. Elijah made everybody miserable. I make everybody miserable. <laughs> you make everybody miserable. They threaten all the established power structures in the world. You can't control them. You can't shut them up. You can't convince them to go away. So the only thing left to do is to kill them. Verse 7, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Well, we haven't met this beast yet in Revelation. We, we haven't seen him yet. He's, he's coming in fuller color. But we know what beasts are, and we know what they do in the Bible. Adam and Eve were deceived by and corrupted by, and they submitted to a beast, the serpent. And then from there on, beastliness in the scriptures is akin to rebellion. The prophet Daniel describes the Gentile nations as beasts. There's Babylon, and there's Persia, and there's Greece, and there's Rome, and they're all beasts in Daniel. This beast, then, must be a nation, which draws its power and its inspiration from the bottomless pit. So we see the outworking of the empire on earth, but we know who's behind it. We know about the principalities and the powers that are behind the empire. This satanic beastly kingdom who rises up against the witnesses that makes war on the church, is this the Roman Empire? There are two references to 42 months in the beginning of chapter 11. And that was the length of time from the great fire of Rome until the death of Nero in 68 AD. It was 42 months, and that was a time of great persecution for the church. 
Nero made war on the church and Christians became scapegoats for all the problems of Rome. Blame it on the Christians. The, the mail's not running on time. Whose fault is it? It was the Christians. Uh, you know, we, 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 there's not enough bread around. There's not enough toilet paper. Whose fault is it? It's the Christians. Blame everything on the Christians. And that's exactly what they did. And they persecuted them. And in fact, and here's the crazy part, this is a funny part of history, it's the severe persecution of the Christians by Rome that emboldens the Jews back in Jerusalem. It fuels their nationalism, and it makes them feel as if they too are justified in their persecution of the Christians. And, and they get so wound up, the Jews get so wound up, that they rise up against Rome in AD 67, and that leads to their eventual destruction. So the church is persecuted by Rome, but in Jerusalem, the temple is destroyed after all this. Jerusalem is wiped out. And in this odd chain of events, the persecution of Christians leads to the final downfall of Jerusalem. The church comes back, but the temple doesn't. So when the, when the persecution begins, when Rome begins to persecute the church, Jerusalem rejoices at the suffering of the church. Verse 8, their dead body will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom in Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Don't miss that Jerusalem is now called Sodom and Egypt. That's the city where Jesus was crucified, and it's Sodom and Egypt. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead body three and a half days and will not allow their body to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Apostate Israel sides with the beast against the church and rejoices over their persecution. Imagine if the Hebrew midwives sided with Pharaoh. Imagine if Rahab sided with the guards in Jericho. Imagine if Esther sided with Haman. Well, that's what Jerusalem does here. That's exactly what they do. They dance and they sing and they celebrate and they have a great party over the persecution of the church, even while they violate their own law. The body of the martyr lies in their streets. And remember, under their law, death defiles, death corrupts. Dead bodies make the environment unclean, but they let it lay there. They hate the church more than they love their own traditions and laws. Inconsistency and contradiction doesn't matter. What matters is winning, and that's all that matters. And they feel that they have won. And that's why in AD 33, several years before this, they can stand in Pilate's courtyard and say, he's not our king, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. Well, up to that point, they would have said Yahweh is our king. And they would have never said that they have any higher allegiance than Yahweh. But now Jesus has exposed their hypocrisy and they say, oh yeah, Caesar's our king. They're so wicked and demented that they side with the beast rather than the lamb. And this is the point, the moment of truth for them. So they did that back in AD 33, and now as we get close to AD 70, nothing has changed. The older brother of Israel now stands in condemnation of the younger brother, the church, and rejoices at their suffering. But the wild party pretty soon comes to an end. 
Now, after the three and a half days, this is verse 11. After three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. In that same hour, there was a great earthquake and a 10th of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. God breathes his spirit back into the church. He gives her new life. He causes her to ascend into the heavenlies. We have been gathered up together with Christ and we have been seated in the heavenly places. Those who've been martyred go to the feet of Jesus. The church as a whole is restored and bounces back stronger than ever after the death of Nero. After the end of persecution, the church comes back in greater numbers because the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Every kingdom and every nation that has tried to wipe out the church has failed. God always vindicates his people, always vindicates his church. And the brutal treatment that they receive at the hands of Jerusalem spells doom for apostate Israel. Heaven and earth are shaken, many are killed, but many repent and give glory to God. God takes a tithe of the city, a tenth of the city is destroyed. It's not quite the end here. We're not all the way to the end, but the end is coming. And that's what, that's what happens to them. Okay, so what does this all mean for us? How do we interpret this? How do we absorb this? Well, it's the same message that was communicated to the original hearers in the first century. And the message is this. Expect opposition and be ready to give up everything in order to gain everything. We must never be surprised when we faced opposition from the kingdoms of this world. Nor should we be surprised when the persecution doesn't make any sense, any logical sense whatsoever. Nero falsely accused Christians of burning Rome, which they didn't. Nero was probably culpable for that. Later, Caesars accused the church of being the cause of all kinds of calamities and natural desire, uh, disasters that, that, that befell Rome. Uh, they alleged that because people were, were failing to worship the old gods, that, that the gods were angry and needed to be appeased. None of it ever made any sense. None of it was based in reality or logic. None of it was justified, and yet people really lost their lives. When it came to the persecution of the early church, Israel was just as irrational and hateful. Here comes their long-expected Messiah, but they conspire to kill him and they plot to get him crucified. They stone Stephen, righteous Stephen. They plot with Herod to kill James and they go pursue the church throughout the entire Roman empire. They stir up conflict between the church and Rome wherever they can. This, these are the Jews, these are the synagogues, these are the, the temples of demons that stir up opposition against the church. And that generation that first generation, first century generation came by it honestly. Israel had a long history of persecuting the prophets. Jesus traced it all the way back to Abel. He said, ever since Abel, you've been killing the prophets. Cain killed his brother Abel over nothing. It was senseless. And that becomes a theme throughout Israel's history, that the wicked hate the righteous. Think back to the generation in the wilderness. After the Exodus, the spies searched out the land of Canaan, and Joshua and Caleb said, oh, we can take it. I mean, there's some big people there. 
There's some walled cities, but God just defeated Egypt for us and he brought us here and we can take them. We can do that. And I was just reading this past week and I saw something I never saw or I forgot if I saw it because it never hit me like it did. Back in Numbers chapter uh, 14, when Jacob and, I'm sorry, uh, Joshua and Caleb are explaining to the people, we can, we can go into the land of Canaan. We can take it. Listen to this. Joshua, the son of Nun and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who spied out the land, tore their clothes. This is after they hear the faithlessness of the other spies. They tear their clothes and they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel saying, the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If Yahweh delights in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against Yahweh, nor fear the people of the land, for they are our bread. We're going to eat them up. Their protection has departed from them. They have, they have nothing to protect them. And Yahweh is with us. Do not fear them. And the people said, oh, that's such an inspiring speech. Yes, you have convinced us, Joshua and Caleb. Let's sharpen our spears and shine our shields and march into the land of Canaan. No, that's not what happened. What happened? Very next verse. And all the congregation said, stone them with stones. And the glory of Yahweh appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. Stone them with stones? Why? How does that make sense? I can disagree with you. Maybe I don't like your plan. Maybe we can talk about this. But stone them? Why were they so hateful toward Joshua and Caleb? Because Joshua and Caleb were brave. And they were faithfully confident in the mercies and the providence and the protection of Yahweh. And because Joshua and Caleb didn't share in the fears or the weakness of the other people. And because Joshua and Caleb were so stalwart and courageous, it exposed everyone else as cowards. They hated Joshua and Caleb because Joshua and Caleb didn't enter into their delusionary narrative that God was incapable of delivering them and it drove them mad. So they tried to cancel Joshua and Caleb. They tried to delete them. They tried to stone them. And this is the pattern of Israel in Acts. I'm just gonna give you a couple more, but this is so pervasive in Acts when Stephen preaches the gospel before the elders and priests and scribes. They get so enraged at Stephen. Listen to what happens. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. And they gnashed at him with their teeth. They cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and ran at him with one accord, cast him out of the city and stoned him. They didn't want a conversation. They didn't want a dialogue. They wanted to shut him up. That's what they wanted. The Lord Jesus himself preaches in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. And when he finished speaking, do you remember what happened? They were filled with wrath and they rose up and they thrust him out of the city and they led him to the brow of the hill so that they might throw him over the cliff. But that's when he walked right through the midst of them and goes out another way. What is going on? What, what provokes this response? How do we get here? I mean, I've heard some pretty heinous blasphemy. I've heard some terrible things. I've seen people act in despicable and disgusting ways, but I've never been so angry that I wanted to bite somebody. That's what they want to do with Stephen. They say they gnash at him with their teeth. They try to bite him. I've never done that. I pray, God, will you deal with this? 
God be merciful and give them repentance. If not, then take them out of the way. But have you ever wanted to bite somebody? I don't, I don't know. I can't ever remember wanting to throw somebody over the cliff so bad that I take them and try to do it. You must not be naive. Do not be naive. This is what the truth does to wicked men. You need to know this. This is the response you provoke when you're faithful. They do not know what to do. The wicked do not know what to do when they're confronted with ideas and men they can't control. They assume that you live in an echo chamber, that you're sitting here today just getting all of your presuppositions affirmed, and we're just going back over and over the old territory, and we're just nodding our heads senselessly to each other, we're just saying the same old things, and we're all a bunch of rubes, and we're all a bunch of barefoot hillbillies that believe this ancient nonsense to them. They, that's what they think. They think you live in an echo chamber, but the reality is it's the wicked who live in an echo chamber. If you read the newspaper or an internet forum or social media or watch the news or watch a movie or see a TV show or read a comic book or read a children's book or listen to a song on the radio or listen to the news on the radio, you get a face full of everything that the wicked enjoy and appreciate and love. You get a face full of their view of the world all the time. We're, opposed, we're exposed seven days a week to their message. We get their theology every day. Their views on the world are in our face. We know how they think. How often are they exposed to our message? How often do they get a face full of the gospel? I would wager not very often. They can go a long time tuning it out and turning it off. And even when they get a little bit of it, when they just get a little glimpse of it, what does it do? It fills them with rage. And all they can think about is how hard they want to cancel you. They want to delete you, just like they did these witnesses. So when that happens, don't be, just, don't, don't, don't be surprised. Know that you are in excellent company. Jesus said, blessed are they when they revile, blessed are you, blessed are you when they revile you, when they persecute you and they say all kinds of evil against you falsely, they lied about me. Yeah, that's what they do. That's what they do. They say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. What happens? Blessed are you. What do you do? What does Jesus say? Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When's the last time you were exceedingly glad? What did you do? Did you laugh? You sing? You skip? roll the windows down and turn the music up? What'd you do the last time you were exceedingly glad? That's what you do when you're reviled. That's what you do when you're persecuted. That's what you do when you're lied about. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Don't despair. Don't be sad. Don't get upset. If you aren't laughing and exceedingly glad, you need to repent because you're not doing what Jesus said to do. And you need to laugh. You need to count it a high honor, a great reward, a huge blessing to get to share in the sufferings of Jesus. Throw a party, shoot fireworks, because it means that the gospel has gone out in power and that it has been effective and that the spirit is moving. 
And this is what I mean when I say we need to have a theology of disaster or a biblical perspective of defeat. If you think that being a Christian means that you're never going to suffer and you're never going to have to give anything up, that you're guaranteed a frustration-free existence, if you believe that, you are going to have a crisis of faith when bad things happen. So to build you up, I have been deliberately militant over the last several weeks, not because I think 2020 is the end of the world, nor do I think 2021 is the end of the world, nor do I believe that the advance of the kingdom of God is dependent upon whatever happens on January 20th, not at all. But because I'm not doing my job if I say peace, peace when there is no peace. And if I'm not preparing you for the possibility that we're going to have to give up some comforts and we're going to have to take some risks and that faithfulness to Jesus will require us more and more to make sacrifices of at least our reputation and our respectability, at least those things, maybe more, but at least our reputation and respectability. And my job is to prepare you for that hour and to exhort you that in that hour you fear only God and not man. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. I want you to be ready to make those sacrifices and be prepared to do it and not be surprised when you're called on to do that. Don't be surprised when it happens because it's obvious that the wicked are getting way too confident you're getting way too cocky, and I think they're just warming up. But Satan always overplays his hand. Sin makes you stupid. The wicked are stupid. They think they get away with things, but they don't. They think there's no God in heaven who sees their thoughts and sees what they're doing. They think that they're getting away with it, but their conspiracies always fall apart. Their plans always fail. And so when you see them waving their flags and celebrating perversion and rejoicing over sin, you ask yourself, okay, what chapter are we in? What part of the book are we in? I don't know how long this chapter is going to last, but I know which one it is. I think the last one. The witnesses of Revelation 11 go out in power and authority. And what happens? They die. Evil rejoices, and it has a party, and then God flips it all upside down. That's how God works. That's the script. You have it. You should never be surprised. All of our greatest victories are disguised as defeats. That's what the cross is, and that's what happens here. So you can be sure when evil has its day, you can take heart. People of God, don't despair. Rejoice. Take courage, because you know what's coming next. Let's give thanks. Father in heaven, thank you for your word and thank you for the encouragement that it brings us. Thank you for your spirit that guides us into it. I pray that you would continually encourage us with these things and strengthen us in them that we might please you in all of our, in all of our life and all of our work. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.